Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. Before we launch into our episode this week, I want to remind everyone that the O'Reilly Design Conference will take place March 19th through the 22nd, 2017 in San Francisco. Visit O'Reilly.com forward slash design con for more information and to register. Now to our episode. This week, I sit down with Jay Trimble, who works at NASA as Mission Operations Manager, Ground Data System Manager, and Resource Prospector for Lunar Rover Mission. We talk about applying agile, design thinking, and user-centered design at NASA. Enjoy the episode. Jay, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. I'd love for you to start off and tell folks a little bit about you and what you do at NASA. Okay, I'll give a little bit of background and then talk about what I'm doing right now. My first experience at NASA was as a summer intern at Johnson Space Center in Houston uh, back in 1981, a long time ago. And that was about two months after the first space shuttle had ever flown. And I just want you to picture that. Now the space shuttles are retired. But at that point, NASA had one vehicle, Space Shuttle Columbia. Uh, It had flown one time. And the atmosphere was just electric. Uh, it was amazing. It was an amazing time. Uh, and I had the uh, privilege of being mentored by a lot of the people who had sent us to the moon. Uh, so that was a, an amazing experience. And that was just a summer. Uh, but I applied to go to work there after I graduated from college and spent a little under five years uh, as a mission controller uh, in payloads at NASA in Houston. Uh, then I was at the Jet Propulsion Lab and uh, worked on the Voyager 2 flyby of Neptune, was lead ops director for a space radar lab that flew on the space shuttle. And now, uh, after a little hiatus from NASA, where I had left for a few years and came back and landed at the Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley, uh, have worked on a lot of computer science-type issues for NASA here at Ames, and right now in the mission operations manager for a moon rover project planning to go to one of the lunar poles to look for water. And being a mission operations manager means you're really responsible for everything on the ground, the mission control team, uh, the mission control center, the software, how we do mission planning, how we do command and control, how we track spacecraft health, uh, the kind of things you've seen mission controllers do. You know, if you've ever watched a piece of a NASA mission mm-hmm. and, and seen mission control center. Interesting. How many people are in a mission control team? Just Well, you know, that is that really varies. Um, by mission. And to be honest, I, you know, I would be hard pressed to give a number. So for our mission, for resource prospector, our, our mission control center is highly distributed, which is an interesting mm. technical challenge. We will have people in California. We'll have people in Houston. We will have people in Florida. Uh, we'll probably have people in Huntsville, Alabama. And in any given moment, that flight team could be around 30 people. Uh, but it is highly variable depending on the type of mission and what you're doing. You know, a space shuttle team would have had a different number of people than, say, an on-orbit team tracking the International Space Station. Interesting. Okay. You've spoken about agile development at NASA and how within your group it was a bottom-up effort, which is so interesting to me. Um, I'd love for you to talk about that and a little bit about the culture of NASA. So, sure. You know, as far as agile goes in my group, and I'm trying to think, it was it was probably around 10 years ago when we started to become agile. And, you know, we didn't really set out with a stated goal of being agile, at least not in the beginning. Uh, We were having issues with our software development, and and we were trying to make it better. And by iteratively solving problems, we found we were starting to match, you know, what was then 
then it was certainly much more less mainstream, I'll say, than it is now. You know, the agile method. So, for example, we had a six month delivery cycle, you know, and we were simply losing lock with our customer. Uh, you know, we would go and we would take a set of requirements and then we deliver six months later. And we were out of sync with our customer because of that. So one of the first things we did is shorten our delivery cycle. Uh, now we're in a three-week cycle, nightly builds. These are fairly mainstream things now, uh, but they were more new then. And we went from getting feedback every six months from our customer, I mean feedback on software, not feedback on designs, to getting feedback daily. We would put out a nightly build every time we had a new feature. We'd get direct feedback from the customer same day. Uh, and, you know, and that's just one of many examples of how, you know, we were just trying to solve the problems that we had. Uh, and we also had a nice kickstart along the way from IBM. Uh, I talked to some colleagues at IBM and they had been through some of this process of going agile. And because they were a large organization, it seemed very relevant. And we had some good technical interchanges with them uh, to help us kickstart that. That's awesome. I mean, agile now is, you know, it's very mainstream idea. But at the time, it was new. Management was very supportive. Um, but once again, you know, we didn't stand up, plant a flag in the ground and make a proclamation. We're going agile. We just solve problems. <laughs> right. Right. That's interesting. Actually, that's an interesting angle when people aren't going, let's be agile. It's no, let's figure out how to work more efficiently. I felt like at the time, if we had made that proclamation, we would have put ourselves in the position to face resistance that we didn't face by just kind of iteratively solving problems. You know, that's just one strategy. I'm sure there's many more. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It kind of reminds me actually a lot of design thinking when people find out that that's what they're doing. There may be pushback, but if you don't tell them that that's actually what they're doing and they're just solving problems, it's OK. Yeah. 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 Interesting. connection. Yeah. So you're you're speaking at the O'Reilly Design Conference about a project at NASA to build a new mission control visualization system for robotic planetary explorers. I want to hear more about this. Um, and I'm sure our listeners do too. So can you talk a little bit about what you plan to cover? I can actually. This project I'm really excited about. So it's easier for me to talk to. <laughs> uh, so we are doing this in collaboration with our colleagues at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, uh, in Pasadena. And uh, maybe folks who remember the Curiosity landing on Mars uh, or have seen any of those robotic missions that JPL leads might be familiar with some of that work. So what we're doing is we're building a, I hate to use the word framework because it's overused, but we are building a set of libraries or a framework, if you want to look at it that way, uh, to enable some new capabilities for our mission. So if you think about a mission control center, if you've ever seen mission control on TV and you have seen people sitting at consoles uh, and each one of those consoles represents some sort of a flight control discipline. So there are systems flight controllers, and they are looking at spacecraft health. They might be looking at the electrical system, uh, the electrical power generation. They might be looking at life support systems. Uh, if it's human space flight, uh, they may be looking at trajectory. They may be looking at mission plans, uh, what the crew is planned to do next, or if it's robotic, what's next in the commanded sequence to the robot. But all of these mission control positions have to look at different types of data, different types of information, and they each have a set of applications to do that. Some of those are common across positions, and some of them are specialized. Uh, so what we're doing is kind of knocking down some of the walls 
around the traditional applications. And we're giving people uh, an environment that has these different types of data visualizations. Uh, you know, in developer speak, we tend to call them software objects, but think of them as visualizations or different data types. And we put all those in one common environment without a bunch of different walls around applications. And then we give mission controllers a layout so that they can, by drag and drop, assemble their data visualizations as they want to, uh, without having to write code to build those visualizations. And then once they have their data in place, they can also view it in different ways. So, you know, you might want to view data as a plot. Uh, you might want to view it as a timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a table or as an alphanumeric, but there's a lot of different ways to view data. So what we're doing is really empowering the users through flexibility. And I hope that wasn't too long an explanation, <laughs> but uh, not at so, all. Is is um what is the name of this framework? Well, that is a great question, <laughs> and it should have an obvious answer. So there is an open source version called OpenMCT, mm-hmm. which stands for Open Mission Control Technologies. Uh, and that's on GitHub. Uh, and we have a demo. We have an information site where you can try this out and try and compose your own display if you want to. Uh, and then we have different names for it for different missions. So, for example, our mission is called uh, Resource Prospector. We call it Web Applications for Resource Prospector. So, of course, we'll have a rover driver. So as soon as uh, someone came up with the idea for work, uh, and we knew we had a driver, someone said, wow, we have to have a component that we call warp drive. Uh, and then at uh, JPL, they call it Vista. So you may see it under many names, but out there in the open source world, it's just called OpenMCT. Excellent. So, I, I mean, obviously you've open sourced it, so you're you're hoping or maybe people are already using it. Have you Have you witnessed any of that? I don't know how long it's been around. Yeah, so open source is... is you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of software in the government now. I believe is out there in the open source world. Uh, so we put this out there, and then are attempting to support it by putting out documentation and you know the pieces and support you would need to succeed in using this. Uh, we've gotten some great interest. You know, we very consciously decided not to market this um, because we're not a marketing organization. We put it out there to see what would happen. Uh, a user posted us on Reddit. And uh, we went from, you know, we were getting about 60 visits a week. I mean, think of that from a corporate standpoint, 60 visits a week. You'd be really in trouble with only 60 visits a week. And uh, I think we went to 50,000 within a couple of days of that post. Wow. And, and with that has come a number of contributions and engagements of interaction and interactions that we just can't have otherwise. And uh, I hope that through putting this software out there that... Uh, we can kind of demystify some of what we do um, and also have interactions with people who are doing things, right, that we wouldn't normally, people we wouldn't normally talk to. So we got an email from somebody doing an Internet of Things projects for farming in Africa. Um, I mean, how fascinating is that? We would never have had that interaction if it wasn't for our open source work. We got uh, an email from somebody working on power plants in Texas. You know, we've had various inquiries from companies in the U.S. and Europe so open source has really opened things up uh, for communication and collaboration. And it's, it's really an enabler for collaboration. You know, people don't want to use our proprietary software, but uh, open source really changes the game. So I consider that a new and developing story. We have a lot of folks engaging right now, and we'll see how substantive those engagements become over time. But I still think of it as fairly new. Mm-hmm. 
No, that's fantastic. It's interesting, too, I, uh, to think about who are the big players in terms of um, not necessarily, you know, um, companies, but where are the big problems? So like IoT and, and agriculture, for instance, big data sets. What do you you know, how do you how do you make sense of that? Uh, so that's interesting. So you also the other thing that I find fascinating is that you've employed design thinking within NASA Mission Control. And I'd like to hear more of the background on that. Sure. And, and I, I do want to put the caveat out there that NASA mission control exists in many places. You know, I'm talking about a, a bounded effort within my group and the collaborations that we've had. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I think the iconic mission control center is is in Houston. You know, the folks that took us to the moon and where we flew the shuttle. But, uh, as I said, mission control exists in many places. So and once again, management has been quite supportive of the idea of design thinking. Uh, I, I think of NASA, you know, really as a hardware-focused system engineering organization. And, and I don't mean by that to say that we don't do software and that we don't emphasize software and that it's not critically important, because it is all of those things. But really, you know, when people think of NASA, right, they think of rockets rising up on launch pads mm-hmm. or rovers landing on Mars or a spacecraft fly, flying by Pluto. And of course, we couldn't do those things without software. So. In terms of design thinking, and this is also true for our agile development methods, you know, we really started with software where we felt we were, you know, we had more familiarity with how to apply it. So system engineering thinking would be, what are my requirements? Uh, how do I validate those requirements? How do I reduce my risk? Uh, and design thinking in that environment, uh, at least in the way we have approached it, is, you know, making sure or providing a pathway to not just getting overly focused, say, on your first idea. Uh, And we know this is an issue, right? And it's an issue that design thinking addresses. I have my first idea, I take it, I become very invested in it, and I run with it. And when you're saying, what is my requirement, it's very easy to go down that path. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we try to provide an environment to that is open to ideation, that is open to evaluating ideas early, uh, where we prototype ideas, where we iteratively move things forward. And, and we have also done user engagements through ethnography, uh, in some cases, interviewing users, doing things you don't typically do in a system engineering process. Now, there are other groups here who do applied human-computer interaction and other things. Uh, my group is focused on just, you know, one set of design methods that we do. Mm-hmm. So... We started, as I said, with software and, you know, we became agile. Then we integrated the user-centered design techniques we were using at the time into those agile workflows, which, you know, goes back to something I was talking about earlier where we were using the nightly build, the software build, and having our designers involved getting daily feedback from our users. And now uh, that we've built some confidence in doing this with software, we're starting to move it to other areas, uh, which is also very exciting. So I mentioned the resource prospector mission to the moon, uh, looking for water at the poles. And there we're taking some of the mission processes of how do you drive a rover doing near real-time command and control. And by that, I mean, right, we send a command to a rover on the moon. It's only a matter of seconds until we get the telemetry back so we knew what happened, right? Versus if you're controlling a rover on Mars, uh, it could be up to 40 minutes before you know what happened. So it's a very different way of interacting with a vehicle off-world. So 
the design questions we have around how to do that, we are doing early prototyping, early simulations where we put the team together and we'll try something, then iterating on those ideas, you know, refining them and building on them. And, uh, you know, in system engineering, some of this prototyping would just be called a risk reduction prototype. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it fits the mindset. And, and some of this is a matter of mapping mental models, you know, where you are bridging these different ways we think so that people can understand. Mm -hmm. So, it, it, you know, if I say a risk reduction prototype, that's a great fit in system engineering. And of course, prototyping is integral to design. That's great. Well, it sounds like you're like the great translator. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's an interesting exploration and journey of seeing where these things fit. And, you know, it, with Agile, you know, we spent, uh, I would say, close to two years tailoring Agile to optimize it for our environment. And, and I feel like in terms of taking design thinking beyond software to the broader mission system, we're in the early phase of saying, how do we optimize this? So if you want to simulate driving a rover on the moon, you know, it's, it's not always trivial to make that high enough fidelity to be valuable, but you don't want to be so high fidelity that you're putting more resources into answering a question than that question is worth. You know what I mean? So anyway, it's a very interesting experience of embarking on you know, tailoring this process for our environment. Mm, yeah. Well, you bring up some good points of, of the balance that you have to strike, but the, the mapping of mental models, I feel like that, that as a, as a skill set should be more widely taught. <laughs> well, uh, and, and if, if you're in a big organization, I, I think it's really important in order to succeed because you've got a number of different stakeholders and they have different mental models and they think differently. And, it's important to be able to talk to each of them and, and start with the mental model that they have and then build from there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what advice do you have for folks who are looking to bring design thinking into their own organization? Well, I guess I would say it really depends on the type of organization. Uh, of course, I'm dealing here with a large organization. Uh, and, and we started, you know, as we alluded to earlier, without putting that flag in the ground. And, and just mapped it into here's how we are going to solve problems. Um, and I think as long as you do that, people are going to be receptive. I, I will say that design thinking has become much more mainstream. And, and I, I think the perception of the importance of design thinking has become much more known, much more widely known in recent years. And that has, in some cases, at least here, led to people requesting what they will broadly categorize as design or, you know, human computer interaction, or we'll, we'll put terms out there, you know, can you apply design to my product or to this process? And, and some of the people asking that, understandably, you know, they're just getting in, they don't necessarily have a understanding or a broad understanding of what that means. And, and I would say in that case, it is very important to clarify expectations and, and to have a clear understanding before you start out on a project of as to what it means when you say you are going to design or apply these methods in a particular environment. I know I'm being a little bit general. Um, I'm just talking about some of the pitfalls that can impede success over time in a large organization, which is a misunderstanding of what the goals are and what the methods are to achieve them. So I would say try and be as 
clear with your stakeholders, understand who they are, keep in touch frequently. And, and I would say the single most important thing that we've been able to do is to show our rate of progress, you know, and this fits in with also with agile, but get stuff out there that people understand and show progress and show it regularly. Mm, that's great advice, no matter what you're working on, right? Sure. <laughs> um, excellent. So in addition to um, design thinking, we've talked about Agile. I'd, I'm just curious, what other kinds are, of tools or methodologies do you guys employ in, within your group there? Um, or are they mostly homegrown? Well, you know, that's a really an interesting question. Are they mostly homegrown? I think, you know, in the beginning of NASA, you know, we really had to, I say we, you know, I, what am I talking about? We, I was, I was a baby. Uh, <laughs> in fact, at the start of NASA, I wasn't even born. Uh, so let me speak to my perception based on having spoken to people and what I've read in the history books. But, uh, you know, everything was new then. You know, if you wanted to communicate, right, you had to build a network. Uh, you had to build a ground station. It was all new. Uh, and I look at that as just being um, a remarkable thing. And that sort of culture leads to a culture of everything is homegrown. Uh, but of course, now we've got a lot of experience under our belt and everything doesn't have to be new. So I would say culturally, it's important to understand what needs to be homegrown and what doesn't. Um, and I'm also hoping that by putting things out there in the open source world, as I said earlier, that we can demystify some of these things. Uh, you know, looking at data in a control center, other folks do that, right? And, and there's definitely room to learn from each other. Now, you get into some specific things like uh, landing a rover on Mars with a sky crane. That's unique. Um, how we may drive specifically uh, when we're on the moon and we go into a region of, that hasn't seen light in a billion years or hundreds of millions of years, you know, those are unique things. So we certainly still do unique things that are very exciting. That's awesome. So I don't, I don't know that I've answered your question. You haven't, but of, you're going to keep going. I know you are. Okay. So in terms of things that we do, uh, I had mentioned ethnography, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we do user interviews. We do user observations in context. Uh, we do a lot of wireframing. We do a lot of prototyping. We do journey maps. Uh, we just did a our first design sprint, which was a Google Venture style uh, design sprint. And we, we had read the book. And for that, we uh, brought in an outside facilitator to help us out. But I, I will say also, we had spent years working on uh, and, and applying participatory design techniques. And the design sprint actually has a lot of similar methodologies to what we were doing in the uh, participatory design, but it certainly takes it much further and puts it together into this amazing way of uh, validating a concept in a very brief period of time. I thought the participatory design was a great way to bring in stakeholders and address some of the issues we've been talking about earlier. Uh, so we really, we, you know, we would sit around a circular table and we had a facilitator who was an expert in these techniques and he worked for us for many years. And we would bring in all the stakeholders. And through these participatory design methods, we would create shared understanding. We would create a common language. Uh, and we would get the user directly involved and invested in the design work we were doing. Uh, I, thought, I thought it was great stuff. In, in order to do that, you have to have a tremendous amount of access to your users. Uh, and we don't always have that. But when you do, uh, you know, participatory design can be a 
great technique. Hmm. Okay, so I, I think that got at least a little bit closer to it, answering your question. No, it, it, it did. It did. I'm curious, though, you brought up something that I didn't hit on, which is, can you describe who your users are? Our users are mission controllers. And depending on what project, you know, we have worked with mission controllers in Houston, working on uh, the International Space Station uh, for the software we're working on now, the current set of projects, uh, which is interplanetary. Our users are at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory or for the moon mission. Uh, it's that uh, distributed ops team that I had mentioned earlier, which is California, Florida, Texas, and Alabama. So mission controllers in a number of locations. And then, of course, when you get down into the open source world, uh, we'll get a set of users who are uh, who are new to us. Right. Right. Wow. Interesting. OK, so um, one final question beyond your awesome, amazing own projects, <laughs> because I think most people would look to NASA to answer this question. But beyond what you're doing and your day job, what people or projects are grabbing your attention? Where do you look for inspiration and and what do you find interesting these days? You know, that that's a really interesting question. Uh, I will say, you know, since I'm a bit of a space nut, you know, there are things going on in NASA that I'm not directly involved in that I find really interesting. Uh, the search for planets around other stars, commonly referred to as exoplanets, uh, looking for another Earth. Uh, I'm just awe-inspired by that, you know, this idea of finding Earth's twin. Uh, you know, what's out there? And the idea that maybe by looking for a biosignature, that we might be able to identify life signs on a planet around another star. Uh, and of course, I, uh, you know, while I'm still here and breathing, I really hope we make some of those discoveries because I want to live to see that. Uh, and then, you know, the idea of oceans on Europa. But anyway, um, I'm talking about space and you want to get outside that. Um, so I love the oceans, nature, scuba diving. I, I will confess to liking a lot of the latest gizmos. Um, but 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 I will also say I occasionally think back to, you know, when I was a kid and we were going to the moon and the excitement that we had. And I think much as I love, you know, these latest gadgets, I, I miss that kind of shared excitement that we used to have around discovery. Uh, and then I love TED Talks and, you know, the simple things, just connecting with people. Excellent. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed it. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a positive review through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud. 